So uh, one day, about 4,000 years ago, a Canaanite man uh, left a little town called Shechem, probably uh, at that time uh, just a settlement where some nomadic uh, herders had settled down. And he went out, out of the city gates, out of the town, to try to find water, to try to get water. Because he knew without water in a place as dry and as arid and as desolate as Canaan, modern day Israel, that without water, he and his family couldn't stay there. Without water, this, this town could never survive. But with water, their crops could thrive, their animals could thrive, his sons could have an inheritance and a land, the community could flourish. And so he went out to get water for his people. In this world, there were two really ways to get water, which was so necessary for life. You could uh, find a stream, they didn't have that. So without a stream, they could go out and they could dig to try to find fresh, bubbling, life-giving water. Or you could dig holes in the ground, cisterns, and hope that you could catch enough rainwater so that you could feed your herds and keep it clean enough for long enough that you could serve it to your people without giving them some kind of parasite. Obviously, digging a well was to be preferred, so he went out, uh, probably with a shovel, and started to dig just outside of Shechem. And maybe for the first few feet, he, he dug and he was going through sand, but something about the land in that part of the world is that after a couple of feet, you hit a bedrock of limestone that's impenetrable. Maybe he knew this, maybe he knew that he would hit it, maybe his heart sank and said, oh no, now what, now what do I do? But he was patient and he was hardworking. And so he threw his shovel aside and in these days before dynamite and drills and jackhammers, he probably picked up a, a pickaxe or, or maybe a chisel and started working his way through the limestone. This would have taken him and probably a team of other people months and months and months. But by the time laboring away in the heat under the Canaanite sun, at about a hundred feet of depth, at a hundred feet of depth, he would have seen a break of water, a little trickle maybe at first, and then a gush, and it fills up. And he'd done it. He'd found water. Water that would have sustained him and his family and his children and his community. Water that allowed Shechem to go from being just a little collection of tents to being a fairly significant town. He had found water, life-giving water. A few dozen or hundreds of years later, uh, this man's descendants met a man named Jacob, uh, the father of the people of Israel who had come into this land. And this man's children's children's children sold the land and the well to Jacob. That's why in our story today, it's called Jacob's well. It's the well that Jacob received from this Canaanite man and gave to his son, Joseph. And for hundreds of years, this Jacob's well here in the middle of what was at the time Israel gave life to their community. Well, over time and through the sad history of Israel, eventually uh, this well, uh, through the long and, and difficult process of exile and restoration, the people who settled back in this area became known as Samaritans. Uh, no longer truly integrated into the life of Israel, the Samaritans uh, intermarried with the Assyrians during their exile. They began to mix Israelite religion with other religions. They ceased going uh, to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple, instead built their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim, which would have been visible right from the well. It loomed over Jacob's well. 
And so by the time our story starts, uh, Samaria, Samaria uh, was no longer a part of Israel. Deep animosity had crept in between uh, the Israelites, the Jews, and the Samaritans. Anyone who could, uh, any Israelite who could, and certainly any Israelite religious teacher avoided Samaria completely. They would always go around it, always avoid it. It wasn't common for Samaritans to kill Jews when they walked through their town. It wasn't uncommon for Jews to kill Samaritans. They considered them racially impure, morally impure, religiously impure. There was a deep, deep tension there. And so, uh, for generations, there was a well that bore the name of Jacob, the father of Israel, but it was sitting there in Samaritan land, away from the people of Israel. Well, one day, this well, this well that hundreds of people would have come to on a daily basis. It was the center of a community's life. One day, it comes back into the biblical story. All we're told about it at first uh, is, that, is this little story of Jacob buying it. Until it comes up in the Gospel of John when two otherwise strangers have a meeting at Jacob's well. Two strangers who really, on the face of it, probably never should have met. One, a Samaritan woman living in the nearby village, the other an Israelite religious teacher, Jesus. These two strangers come to a meeting that changes uh, their life and really in some ways the life of the church and the world forever. These two strangers, one of them is, as we said, a woman from Samaria. She comes to the well at the sixth hour, which is, uh, we would say, at high noon. This is the dead center of the day, the heat of the day. And this woman comes, as so many other women did, to draw water from this well for her daily needs. But she's not like the other women who came to the well. What, uh, what women from this village did, and really women, women from every village did, was that they came to the well together in large groups, believing there was safety and help in numbers for the arduous work of loading up and carrying all of this water. So they came either at dawn or at dusk in the cool of the day, and they came as a community. They came as a gathered community. They would, they would come together to the well. They would share their stories. They would uh, maybe share town gossip. They would visit together. They would help one another. And then they would go back home to their families. And yet this woman comes alone. She comes alone at the very hottest time of the day to gather water. You know, just from those details alone and from what we learn about this woman later in the story, we know that for her, the gathering of the women of the village was not a source of comfort, but a source of shame and a source of threat. This was a woman uh, who would have been known in her village. We're told later in the story that she was a promiscuous woman, a woman who had gone from marriage to marriage to marriage to marriage to now being in a relationship with a man with whom she was not married. And so for her to go with all of the other women, would have been to be exposed to their judgment, exposed to their gossip, exposed to their malice. And so this woman comes to the well, not just to draw water, but she comes to hide. Jacob's well for her in the middle of the day was a hiding place. It was a place where she could go and know that she wouldn't be seen, that she wouldn't be talked about, that she wouldn't be known. She's in hiding here. You know, shame is one of the most powerful forces that a human being feels. Shame is the belief that somewhere deep down in us, there is something fundamentally wrong. 
If guilt is the belief that sometimes I do wrong, shame is the belief that at my core I am wrong. And if anybody sees me, if anybody knows me, then it's only going to mean pain. It's going to mean rejection. It's going to mean laughter. It's going to mean hurt. And so in our shame, we hide. We, we, we cover over parts of our lives. We wear masks. We avoid exposure. Uh, author uh, Brene Brown puts it this way. Uh, shame is the fear that we are not good enough, that there's something deep down wrong with us. And so this woman comes in her shame to the well, preferring the scorching heat of the Canaanite sun to the scorching gaze and gossip of Canaanite women. She comes alone. And it's working. This strategy probably worked for her every day of her life because only a fool would go to do this kind of manual labor at noon. But on this day, another stranger comes to the well at the same time. Jesus, we're told, uh, says to his disciples, uh, John puts it this way. He says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go to Samaria. You know, we've already said this isn't a had to of necessity. There are ways around Samaria that every other religious teacher would have taken, that every other uh, self-protecting Jew would have taken. And so the had to behind Jesus here, what's driving him, isn't a had to of geography. It's not that there was no other way to get there. It's a had to of divine calling and necessity. Throughout the gospel of John, Jesus seems to be operating with a timer, uh, with a schedule that's known only to him. Over and over, we've seen this at the wedding at Cana when Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. We see it when he comes to Lazarus' grave when he seems to be taking his time to get there, to get there at just the right moment. Over and over in Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of John, we see that he has a, maybe a calendar of appointments that he knows about, that his disciples are in the fog about. And it seems that that's what's driving Jesus to Samaria now, is that he knows that he has an appointment with a woman by a well, that he's seeking her, that he's pursuing her, that he knows that he has a purpose driving him to Samaria. I love that he's seeking her uh, in the very midst of her shame. You know, he could have gone to Shechem. He could have gone to Sychar. He could have gone to her village and found her some other way. But instead, he found her when she was trying very deliberately to avoid being found. He found her in the midst of her hiding. He found her in the midst of her shame. And that's always where Jesus seeks us. It's always where Jesus is after a meeting with us. Right, we would prefer to meet Jesus in our dressed up selves. Right, we would prefer to meet Jesus when we look our best. We would prefer to present our best side. We prefer to present our best deeds, our most loving selves. Jesus has no interest in meeting pretend you. Jesus didn't come to meet your ideal self. He came to meet your real self. He came to meet us in the midst of those places of our hearts that we hide those things that we do in darkness, those aspects of our thought life or our relational life that we would prefer no one else ever know, no one else ever meet. Jesus says, I had to go to Samaria. I had to find her and I had to find her here. And he does find her. They meet in a moment of common humanity. I love this. John tells us in his prologue that the word became flesh, that he became just like us. 
And he meets this woman in the midst of his humanity. It says that his disciples go on to to find food because they're hungry. Jesus, he says, is thirsty. He's worn out. He stumbles around and finds a seat here by the well. And he says, no, guys, you go on. I'm thirsty. I'm going to stay here. The woman comes and he says, give me a drink. I love that he, he asks her to help him. But he reaches out and begins a relationship with her. She snaps back at him. How do you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? If you hear a hardness and a judgmentalness and a bigotry even in her tone, you're, you're reading her correctly. How do you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Because Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another. Just like the man drilling for water or picking away for water when he hit the limestone. He has hit a hard and rocky heart. He's hit a heart that says to Jesus, thanks, but no thanks. Get away. And yet Jesus says to her, if you knew uh, who I was, if you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked him for living water and he would have given it to you. He would have given you living water. Jesus is saying that just as necessary as water is to your life, as water is to your community, Just as necessary as that, am I to your soul? Is the living God to you? You know, behind uh, behind this interaction, I think is is a phrase in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah chapter two. You know, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was called the weeping prophet. Uh, He was called to bring bad news to God's people, to bring news to them about how they had sinned against God and turned their back on him. And in Jeremiah 2, he puts it this way. God, through Jeremiah, says, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I believe this, uh, this mention of living water in Jeremiah is the only other time that living water is used in this way in the Bible. I think it's what Jesus is referring to, but Jeremiah says Through Jeremiah, God says to his people, sin is basically this. It has two parts. One, you turn your back on God, your only source of life, right? The only hope that you have for real and deep and abiding and lasting life. The first part of sin is that we turn away from that. You know, C.S. Lewis has said that as an engine is made to run on petrol or what Americans would say, gasoline. As an engine is made to run on gasoline, so God has engineered the human heart to run on him alone. To run only drawing our life from him as our source. And so God says in your sin, you refuse that, you refuse that source. And instead you dig out cisterns from yourself, for for yourselves. Remember we said that there were two main ways without a stream that you could get water. There was real fresh, deep living water that you might find in a well. And then there was collected rainwater, cisterns, muddy, disease-ridden, holes in the ground to catch rainwater. And the prophet Jeremiah goes further. He calls them broken cisterns that leak water, that are spilling out water, that can't hold water. And so this is, I think, one of the more tragic and yet beautiful pictures of sin that we find anywhere in the Bible. That sin is the foolishness of turning our back on living water to try to survive on our own, to try to find water on our own, to try to dig out a life for ourselves. 
that can never really match up, that can never really satisfy. We know that we're thirsty. We know that we need water. And apart from God, we look for other places to find it. You know, I think that's what's going on in verse 16 when Jesus asks what seems to be, if you're Jesus and you are uh, essentially omnipotent and, and omniscient, you know everything, and you ask a woman, okay, go, call your husband and then come back. And you know her story. You know her sad story of, of multiple husbands and now living with this man who's not her husband. If you know all that and you say, okay, go call your husband. Is Jesus just being cruel? Is Jesus just trying to shame this poor woman more? No, of course not. I believe that what Jesus is doing is for her, he's trying to expose for her where she has dug her broken cistern. Forsaking the source of living water, the place that she's gone to again and again and again to try to find life for herself. And for her, it's been these romantic attachments, these serial marriages that she's had in her life that if each one failed her, we don't know why, we don't know how. But what Jesus seems to be doing is saying, look, if you want to know the source of living water, first you have to acknowledge the cisterns you've dug for yourself and how empty they are and how they can never, ever find you life. Right, digging, trying to dig a fifth cistern after four failed attempts and trying to draw life out of another relationship with a man is sure to only leave her empty again. You know, we are made, each of us, for love and intimacy. Right, the way that we're fashioned, we're made for intimacy and love from God and from others. And I think for that reason, romantic relationships uh, are particularly alluring places to try to find life. Maybe you've known that heartache in your life of failed relationships or maybe multiple failed relationships. Maybe you can really identify with this woman who's now going to man number five to try to fill up something inside. Or maybe you've been in the same marriage or the same relationship for a long time and you, you know how fruitless and how, how empty it can be to try to suck life out of your spouse, to try to, to, try to use them to fill you up on the inside. But I believe that our marriages and our romantic attachments are a, particular, uh, a particularly easy place for us to go, believing that there we'll find life. If we could just find the right man or woman, the right person to, to plus all of our minuses, the right person to love us unconditionally, then we'd be filled. Uh, the singer-songwriter David Wilcox has a beautiful song uh, called The Break in the Cup. And he sings it uh, to a woman with whom he is in a relationship where they're mutually realizing uh, how unable they are to satisfy each other. In one verse of the song, he says this, I guess you cannot make me happy, and that's a money-back guarantee, but you can pour yourself out till you're empty, trying to be just who I want you to be. You cannot make me happy, it's just the law of gravity because there's a break in the cup that holds love inside of me. There's a break in the cup that holds love inside of me. That the place that, uh, that holds love in us leaks. There's something in us that's made to rest in love, but we can't. So we keep taking that broken cup to different places, to different cisterns to try to fill it up 
to try to satisfy us, but there's a break in it uh, that does not hold water. I don't know where uh, you take your broken cup. Maybe it's to romantic relationships. Maybe it's to, to overeating, to comfort yourself. Maybe it's to overdrinking. Maybe it's to the use of drugs. Maybe it's uh, to the affirmation and success uh, with other friendships and people around you. But I think it's a profound picture of the human condition that we take this broken cup to place after place after place, seeking fullness. And so Jesus, uh, in his love and tenderness, is exposing for this woman that you'll never drink deeply of the living water until you recognize that there is no other source out there, that there's no other place for you to take your cup. There's no other man that's gonna come along to fill you up. The biggest barrier to drinking from the living water that Jesus offers is the belief that there's satisfaction to be found out there somewhere else. That if we look hard enough, we can find it. At the end of the song by David Wilcox, he says, we cannot trade empty for empty. We must go to the waterfall. Right? We can't each keep bringing our broken cups to each other. We have together to go and put our cups under the waterfall to come to the place that Jesus calls the fountain of living water. He says to this woman that if you take it, it'll actually become a fountain of living water welling up within you to eternal life. You'll, become, uh, you'll go from just being thirsty and needing to drink to actually having a source of water within you, having a, a movable feast of life given to you by the Spirit. He goes on to say, so that you, the, the time is coming where you won't worship right there on Mount Gerizim that we can see from the well. You won't go to, to Jerusalem to worship, but you'll have it within you. You'll have this living water, this new life right there within you. You know, it's fascinating to me that John puts this story of this woman uh, right next to the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, these two stories are really twins. They, uh, they're the two uh, first long teaching accounts in the Gospel of John. And John puts them right there next to each other. And you could not imagine two more different people, could you? If you're here last week, you remember Nicodemus was an Israelite man who was a religious leader and teacher and an exemplary member of Israelite society. Any way you look at it, he was at the top of the ladder in Israelite society. And now this woman is his mirror opposite. She is at the bottom of the ladder, any way you cut it. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. She's an immoral Samaritan woman who lives on the fringes of her community. And yet, in the economy of the kingdom of God, the story with Nicodemus ends with him still in the dark. Right? Remember, he goes to meet with Jesus at, at night. The last words that he speaks to Jesus when Jesus talks to him about new birth and new life is, how can this be? How can this be? And yet the woman gets it. She gets it. She believes. She's changed. Not only, not only does she believe, but then she goes back to her village and she tells them and it says that many believed because of her. And then she asks Jesus to stay in her village and he stays for a few days. And it says that many, many more people believed because of Jesus and because of her. And so in the upside down nature of the kingdom, the ones at the bottom of the ladder get it. The ones at the top of the ladder sometimes don't. But this woman is profoundly and utterly changed. How do we know just how changed she is? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. She just drops it there and went away into the town and said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
Remember who this woman is. Remember where we meet her hiding in her shame, hiding to keep parts of her life blocked out from anyone. And this woman, this shame-covered woman, runs back into her community that she fled in hiding and says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Come see a man who saw to the very depths of me, who saw to the dark corners of my life, who saw to the parts of myself that you know I've been hiding from you for a long, long time. He saw all of it. He saw my failed marriages. He saw my uh, wandering heart. He saw every single bit of it. And he loved me. And he stayed with me. And he saw me. This is, this is how shame gets healed. Right? If shame is the belief that I can't be seen and known at the same time, the healing of shame happens when you're seen and known and loved. When somebody sees every single bit of you, and chooses love in the face of it. And then shame bring, the healing of shame brings you back into community where all of a sudden you don't care what people see about you. You don't care if the whole town, even the gossipy women that gather at the well, see those parts of you because you can say, those parts of me don't define me. I'm not defined by the parts of me that I, that I hide. I'm not defined by your gossip. I'm not defined by your judgment. I'm defined by the one who sees me and loves me the one who saw me and stayed with me. Some of you know what it is to have a part of yourself that you're anxious about sharing with anybody, right? Maybe you know that it's something that you have to share at some point, you know, but every time you enter into a relationship, right? You know, okay, you know, all right, first date, I know I don't share it now. Second date, no, probably still not. I kind of like him. Uh, I'll probably keep it back, or I, I kind of I like her. Third date, fourth date, okay, now it's getting awkward. And if I don't tell this person about my history or about my addiction or about my story, at some point, it's gonna be more hurtful. And so you, you offer it up. You, you risk telling somebody the truth about yourself, the truth about your sin, the truth about your shame, the truth about your addiction. And there's never a more vulnerable moment in your life, is there, than when, than when you put that out there. And here's Jesus. He sees absolutely to the core of her, no secrets, and loves her in the face of it. It's the only thing that can ultimately heal our shame and fill our hearts. You know, the Bible uh, is full of wells like this one. There's There's a trope in the Bible, a pattern that repeats itself so often that you start to anticipate it, of men and women meeting at wells, It happens over and over again. In Genesis, uh, Rebecca goes to a well one day. She meets Abraham's servant uh, who is on a mission to find a a wife for for Abraham's son, Isaac. And he meets her and and she gets married to Isaac. Rebecca goes to a well looking for water and leaves a well with a husband. Rachel goes to a well and is seen by Jacob, also in Genesis, who falls so hard for her that he works for her kind of manipulative father for 14 years to win her hand. Rachel goes to a well to get water uh, and ends up leaving with a husband. Zipporah uh, in Midian goes to a well and she's attacked by people who would exploit her and Moses comes to her aid, drives them off and marries her. Zipporah goes to a well looking for water and leaves with a husband. With that story, with those stories, with that pattern in mind, an Israelite would have come to this text and go, okay, here's a woman, here's a well, here's a man. This woman too, this anonymous woman, 
came to a well for water and left with a husband. Not just her sixth husband, not just another one in a long line of husbands, but the true and better husband, the only one who could fill her heart with joy and life with what Jesus calls here living water. Have you met Jesus in that place? That place where he meets your shame, where he sees you and he heals it. That place where he transforms your life from the inside out, fountains of living water, enough to nourish not only your own heart, but the hearts of those around you. You know, we started by saying that 4,000 years ago, a man walked out of this village to dig a well. And when he hit a rocky surface, he wasn't deterred, but patiently and persistently he dug. He dug and dug and dug until a trickle of water and then a spew of water came out to give new life to nourish a community. Well, Jesus also came to that same spot seeking, seeking this woman's heart. And he dug and he dug and he pursued her and he didn't stop when it got hard. He didn't stop when he hit the rocky surface, but he kept going until water burst out of it. Living water. There was enough to change and to sustain a community. There was enough to give life and to start a revival in a Samaritan village of all places so that the church always and everywhere would know that the gospel has the power to cross every social boundary, every moral boundary, every boundary of shame, that it was never meant to just be an Israelite community, but it was meant to give life and to nourish all communities, all towns, all people, all places.